Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The New Abnormal. I'm producer Jesse Cadden, and this week Molly and I are taking a little bit of a break. So we have some pre-taped interviews on some really interesting subjects that we're going to be rolling out throughout the week. First up is Noah Hurwitz, who covered the El Chapo trial for Rolling Stone and has now written a new book called El Chapo, The Untold Story of the World's Most Infamous Drug Lord. And we're going to talk to him all about that. Welcome to The New Abnormal, Noah. Thank you so much for having me. We're super excited to have you. Talk to us about this book because it's very exciting to encounter a book that is not about Donald Trump or American politics, but has also really important American political, uh, you know, implications. Can you talk to us about this? Yeah. So this book is the product of two and a half years of work. I started um, covering the sort of El Chapo saga in November of 2018. Prior to that, I had done some, you know, coverage of, like, domestic drug policy in the United States, but um, I got a gig covering the trial of El Chapo for Rolling Stone. And so I was in the courthouse every day for basically three months straight. Out of that grew this. And so I spent the next year, uh, 2019, in Mexico, sort of bouncing between Mexico City and Sinaloa and northern Mexico along the border. You know, it's it's really exciting to finally be putting it out. The book is, it's about El Chapo, obviously. It's so much more than that. You know, from the, from the very beginning, I had very little interest, honestly, in sort of a, a straight, just like biography of a like famous criminal, you know, for, for one thing, there's a lot of media out there already about El Chapo. And for another thing, I just, I, I don't think that an overly narrow focus on one person is a great way to understand an issue. But I do think that the story of El Chapo offers us a lot of ways to understand the sort of trajectory of the drug war. You know, the, the war on drugs essentially made El Chapo who he was. You know, he grew as powerful and as wealthy and as well-known as he did because it had a lot to do with time and place. He was coming of age in Sinaloa when the sort of like hippie marijuana boom was basically causing the drug trade in Sinaloa to expand dramatically. Um, And he, you know... The, the sort of reaction to that was a lot of sort of militarized um, anti-drug operations by the Mexican government under pressure from the Nixon administration. And that really shook things up, sort of, you know, wiped out some of the old guard, allowed newer guys to, to start getting big. And so again and again, you know, we see that again in the, in the 80s um, with, you know, the advent of cocaine. Mexican traffickers started to move Colombian cocaine, and this caused their profits to just grow exponentially. And that gave them more power and more sort of, you know, more, more buying power in terms of, of corruption in Mexico. They were able to burrow their way more sort of 
into the fabric of of the Mexican state, and so just you know again and again, you know, and and then in the in the two thousands with sort of the the rise of the um, opioid epidemic in the United States, the demand for for heroin and then for fentanyl grew dramatically, and again El Chapo was able to sort of um, exploit that and be you know profit from that, and so this book follows the life of El Chapo, but each sort of episode of his life is to me instructive about a certain era of the war on drugs. And so what I really want readers to come away with is, you know, yes, this really engaging, dramatic story of a really fascinating, brutal man, but also the much larger sort of structural forces, historical forces that made him who he was. I know that that's very important and serious stuff. Can we talk about the mistress and the wife? <laughs> sure, yeah. Because that is a story that has absolutely captured my imagination, and you must have seen that play out in the courtroom, right? Yeah, so for those who were not following the sort of day-in, day-out of the trial of El Chapo, towards the end of the trial, there was this witness who testified against El Chapo. Her name was uh, Lucero Sanchez Lopez, and... She was, among other things, a former state deputy in the, in the state of Sinaloa for the um, former ruling party, the in, Party of Institutional Revolution, which has long had a lot of uh, drug ties. So she was sort of like a congressman there? Yes, yeah, so, so like a state senator. Okay. And so she, she was also a mistress of El Chapo. But of course. Yes, she, she became a state deputy after her involvement with El Chapo, which, you know, tells you a little bit about how as, politics as work hope. in Sinaloa. Yeah. Yeah. But so she, you know, gave this really wild testimony. She was, um, you know, in, in, in 2014, February of 2014, there was this, um, this joint operation between the DEA and the Mexican Marines in Culiacan, the capital of Sinaloa, looking for El Chapo. They actually, they ended up catching him two days later, but there was this one really dramatic raid where they were essentially banging on the door of his safe house, and he was escaping through a tunnel in the bathroom. All of his safe houses had sort of these like hydraulic bathtub shells that could rise up and reveal a, a tunnel. And so Lucero, it turned out, was uh, with him for that and gave this really wild um, story about, you know, while the, the Marines are banging on the door, having to, like, run through this tunnel and, and escape with El Chapo, who was uh, naked, by the way. <laughs> Important detail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she was kind of shaking in her boots on the stand. You know, she was really nervous. She wouldn't look at El Chapo. They asked her, like, you know, what was the status of her relationship with him? And she's like, to this day, I, I don't really know. You know, she said, I think, it, you know, it can be hard to... Uh, disentangle yourself from a from a drug lord. So she, her first day of testimony was on a Thursday. The trial was Monday through Thursday, and then we had Friday off, thankfully. <laughs> and the next Monday, to back up, El Chapo's wife, uh, Emma Coronel, who is this young, she's, she's my age, she's like 31. The mistress and the wife look not all that dissimilar. They look very similar. Um, just to paint you a picture, Emma Coronel is often referred to as uh, Kardashian-esque. Right. She has had a lot of plastic surgery. She has this sort of, there's this term in Sinaloa and in Mexico, uh, buchona, which refers to these sort of like narco wives who have had like a ton of plastic surgery yes. and have these really sort of like 
I read an amazing article about this. Yeah, they sort of all, they all look like Kardashians. Yeah. Emma Coronel, who, by the way, has now recently just pleaded guilty um, to helping uh, El Chapo with some of his endeavors, including his uh, 2015 escape. At any rate, Emma Coronel was in the courtroom every day you know, sort of supporting her, her husband. And so she was there for all of this testimony of by Lucero talking about her, you know, extramarital relationship with El Chapo. And on the next day of testimony, which was a Monday, Emma comes into the courtroom and she's wearing this sort of like splendid, like, uh, like, like velvet smoking jacket almost. And we didn't think too much of it because she was always wearing kind of wild outfits. But then... When, you know, when the, the court is called to order, El Chapo comes in and he's wearing a matching jacket. And, you know, it, the, the sort of common uh, read of that was that Emma and El Chapo were sending a message of, you know, we're in this together despite what this, you know, what this lady is, is saying up there on the stand. Wow. I mean, just a crazy story. So now El Chapo is in jail now. El Chapo is in prison now. He was found guilty, unsurprisingly, in February of 2019. In July of 2019, he was uh, sentenced to life in prison, and he is currently in a very small, solitary cell at this uh, really nasty prison called ADX Florence. It's like a super, super max prison uh, on sort of the, the high desert of Colorado, that is where they put a lot of, you know, terrorists and big-time drug traffickers. You know, I think, uh, like, Jahar Sanayev is there, El Chapo is there, <laughs> some of El Chapo's enemies are there. It's not a nice place. I spoke with, you know, someone sort of, you know, familiar with his case recently who told me that he's, he's not doing too well. You know, he's miserable. And whatever one thinks about what El Chapo deserves, and I think he deserves a lot, it... <laughs> It's hard not to... It's hard not to feel bad for him. Yeah, that fate... I wouldn't wish that fate on anyone. And actually, like, during the trial... So, so right after the trial, there was this really interesting um, episode where a jury member spoke to uh, Keegan Hamilton, who's a reporter at Vice, yeah. who had been sort of live-tweeting the, the trial. Or not live-tweeting, because in federal court, you can't have your phone in the, in the room, but he would go down to the break room during every break and, and sort of tweet what had happened. So people were really following his Twitter during this. It turned out the jurors were... were following it too <laughs> that seems yeah not great yeah i mean it's like are you allowed to do that i mean it feels like mistrial you are not allowed to do that yeah. you are in my, like the the judge at every juncture would say you know do not follow the news do not talk to anybody yeah. about this so yeah do no, not they would follow not follow the twitter of a journalist covering this right yeah. <laughs> right so anyways but one of the, one of the things that the juror said was that it really weighed on them that they knew that they were, you know, sending El Chapo to this really hideous fate. And that, that sort of makes me, you know, when I, when I talk about, you know, where El Chapo is now and what he deserves, I've thought a lot about who he is as a person and the sort of, you know, the moral weight of his, of his actions. And my conclusion by the end of it is that I think that he's a bad guy, but I think that he's a bad guy in the way that, like, Many legal businessmen are bad guys. A lot of times we, we talk about these sort of contradictions of he was responsible for acts of brutal violence. He was, you know, pumping deadly drugs into the United States thanks to, you know, high demand in the United States. You know, there was all, there's so much 
death and misery and violence associated with the drug trade that El Chapo is often blamed for, in some, in some cases, I think rightfully, and in some cases, I think, you know, individuals are often blamed for larger structural problems. But people talk about this contradiction of, you know, we know that he has a certain, you know, he, he's a family man in his own way. You know, he, he's very fond of his children. He seems to be very fond of his current wife. <laughs> One would hope. I don't know if he was the best partner. No, I, I, I don't know that he was the best husband, but... I just, one of the questions I have when it comes to things like this is, has someone come in and filled the void since El Chapo's been in jail? That's a good question. Uh You know, it's great if it stops the drug trafficking, but again, if it just gives over the cartel to someone else, then what, you know? Nothing's changed. The week of the jury verdict um, in, in February of 2019, you know, there was news that the DEA had made, you know, the biggest yet seizure of fentanyl in Arizona. You know, clearly 93,000 people have died of overdoses in the United States last year. Mexico has an ever-increasing number of, of murders each year. Last year was, I think, around 36,000. Drugs are moving across the border at the same clip. And so, in, you know, in, in Sinaloa, there was a bit of a, you know, there, there was a power struggle directly after his extradition between his sons, um, who are sort of collectively collectively referred to as Los Chapitos, or the Little Chapos, and this lieutenant of El Chapo, uh, Damaso Lopez. And so there was a a brief power struggle. The Los Chapitos won. Damaso was arrested. His son fled and turned himself in. There was some violence there. But overall, in Sinaloa, there is sort of a fairly, like, shaky peace between the sort of the various factions of what we sort of I would say erroneously refer to as the Sinaloa cartel. Right. When we talk about cartels it's 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 really just sort of a a group of smugglers and, and traffickers who sometimes work together and sometimes work against one another and sort of, you know, work together to collude with certain certain parts of the state, you know, for, for protection and the ability to, to operate. So in Sinaloa, people do sort of talk about him nostalgically. I think that he was seen as this sort of old school, more respectful um, guy than some of the younger the younger people uh, involved in the drug trade today. But I think that's also like slightly like wishful thinking. But overall, I mean, no, it it, it hasn't made any dent in the amount of drugs coming over the border. It hasn't made any dent in really in any meaningful way that's good. The arrest of El Chapo was an extension of what we refer to as the kingpin strategy, which was this effort by um, both the DEA and the and Mexican security forces under President Felipe Calderón and his successor Enrique Peña Nieto to combat the drug trade by sort of picking off the heads of smuggling networks or, or cartels. And they were fairly successful at, um, you know, arresting the the big guys. Almost all of the sort of big name traffickers that uh, President Calderon uh, set out to capture uh, when he launched his war on drugs in late 2006, early 2007. Almost all of the big name traffickers that he wanted to get are now dead or in prison. And that now includes El Chapo. But the real effect of that was not to, like, in any way diminish the drug trade. It just made it exponentially more violent. Yeah. There's a power vacuum and sort of factions and groups that were formerly 
somewhat stable or had sort of um, existing pacts or existing nego- like ne- ongoing negotiations with one another suddenly be- begin competing and they break up and they sort of atomize. Right. And it gets more violent. Exactly. And it gets more violent. We're seeing that right now in the state of Sonora. We're seeing that a lot in the state of Guerrero, where there's really been this like hyper sort of like splintering of, of trafficking organizations. And the only effect that the arrest of people like El Chapo has is on the people of it's Mexico. I mean, it's on El Chapo, yeah. sure, yes. But it's on the, it's, you know, it comes down most of all and worst of all on the people of Mexico. Noah, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You were great. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.